Hi, my name is Mark and welcome to The Active Listener, where we aim to listen, not just hear. We firmly believe that everyone has an interesting story to tell, if given the space to do so. So listen in to what our guests have to say. You may learn something. So today I have a very interesting guest of the name of Ed Williams. Hello, Ed. Hello, Mark. Nice to be here and thanks for asking me. No problem. It's great to have you on board today because I know you've got a very interesting backstory. So we're going to kick off and with you telling us a little bit about yourself. Okay, yeah. So I'm uh, 54 and uh, I'm married with two teenage children, um, adopted children, in fact. I live in Twickenham, grew up in Clapham, so so not far from where I, not living far from where I grew up. And I think probably compared to a lot of my friends and other people I know, I've had a very varied and unconventional working life. Uh, perhaps, perhaps that's the that's that's the thread that goes through the, our conversation today. I think just uh, really, um, you know, my, I've the decisions to do certain jobs at certain times and why I came to those decisions, I think have been unusual compared to, compared to many people. I'm actually at a time in my life at the moment where I've just left the last job I was doing and thinking about the next thing, which is again, uh, quite unusual in your mid fifties. There's plenty to talk about there. I'm lucky to have a very, a very stable and happy home life. Uh, my wife and I share a very, keen interest in food and cooking which has been a big theme for both of us she grew up in restaurants uh, and her father was a chef so she from a very young age was surrounded by that by that world for me it came a bit later but then I was a chef for many years and I owned a restaurant so our whole life together and then our life with the children is is, is very much has always got cooking and the preparation of food and the enjoyment of foods running in the background and we're always having those conversations not just about what we've just eaten or what we're going to eat later on but also those sort of talks about the place of food in our society and I think that is something that's that's changed a lot during my adult life from a social point of view obviously from a health point of view a socioeconomic point of view it's a fascinating subject what we eat and how we eat and it's something we all have in common uh but everyone's got an opinion it's turned out in my career that i've ended up being involved with preparing food for people and observing people's behaviors around food and then being involved in the health side of that so i've had a really good opportunity to explore that side of our lives and our society uh so you more more of that to come that's very interesting um, what you're sharing about food and approaches and, and sort of attitudes to that. And it's such an integral part of your life, both previously and in fact, in more recent times, I understand that you are a trained dietitian. So mm, that's right, what right. led you to that as a, a career? First of all, I'd say that I'm a very unusual dietitian. Uh, most dietitians are women, probably 19 out of 20. And uh, most of them are a bit younger than me. So to meet a male dietitian in his 50s is, uh, is quite rare. And this has come about because it's the, the latest step in a, in, in a long career of one thing leading to another. And, you know, and the, the, the cooking was all part of this. I think it's worth saying to begin with that all of my career decisions going back over 30 years have been very much influenced by watching my father, who grew up in a very different time, came from, uh, you know, had came from a family, a very high achieving family who had certain expectations. He was pressured into going into the law, which he never really enjoyed. Um, and he did very well as a lawyer, provided very well for us as a family and was a good father. But he was very, very unhappy at work and um, didn't get the fulfillment and uh, and satisfaction that that um, perhaps all of us expect to get from work or hope to get nowadays um, and it impacted on his mental health and uh, he died shortly after retiring 
And that seeing that, particularly in, in my teenage years when I was able to understand it, impacted quite profoundly on my own ideas for what I was going to do. And I think very early on, I knew that I only wanted to do the kind of work that interested me um, naively uh, and optimistically. And at that time, I just thought I'll do what I enjoy or worry about the money another time. I think possibly your perspectives change as you get into your middle years, but that, that certainly wasn't my motivation in those days. So I went to university, just studied my favourite subject, which was English Lit. So I did that, didn't work very hard, got some sort of degree, left university and then became a painter and decorator for a few years because I was um, very keen on rowing at the time, still am, and I just want to do as much rowing and, and, as I can, so I'll do a job that fits around that. Then I sort of started become in, to become interested in cooking and food and just began to think, all right, what really am I going to do for a living that's a bit more substantial and has a bit more direction and future in it? I found out about a, a year's cookery course, the Pruleith cookery course. So started saving up money to do that, ended up going there for a year, and that's where my whole cooking career began. And I worked in restaurants and um, sooner or later got around to opening my own shop. Uh, so I had a I had a kind of cafe deli sandwich bar, built up a catering business. So I did that for about 10 years, which was quite a success and very popular and a, and a good, you know, a, a really good substantial chapter in my working life. But then there was another another kind of turning point when my wife and I adopted the kids. She took a couple of years off work. Um, I was still running the business. And then she went back to her job and she's very successful in what she does. So it just sort of made sense at that time for me to sell up and spend some time at home with the kids. I got a good offer for my business and uh, I was ready to do something different. So I thought, yeah, let's just take some time, look after the children and and reassess. And did, during that time, I thought of all sorts of stuff. I thought, and, and it really came down to being a, a plumber or a dietitian. I, I didn't even know what a dietitian was in, in those days. In fact, the words dietitian in itself was, um, you know, I, I thought experts in food were called nutritionists and a lot of people you know, and and they are. In fact, there's quite a distinction there. Um, worth throwing in at this point. In in mm. answer to to answer my own question, a nutritionist um, could it is not a protected title. So anybody could call themselves a nutritionist. Somebody who just bought a book on nutrition, uh, decided to offer out their expertise or write articles, all the way up to somebody who's done a three year university degree. And is highly qualified, but the title is not protected. Um, right. A dietitian is a legally protected title, very much like a, a, a chartered accountant or a or a radiologist or or a doctor. And you have to do a four year accredited degree, and it's defined as somebody that uses nutritional science to treat disease. So most dietitians, huge majority, you'll find in healthcare which in this country means working in the NHS. So that's what a dietitian is. And that was the first thing that interested me because to begin with, I just thought, well, I like the idea of being an expert on food and health. And I don't know, you know what I'll be doing. Maybe I'll be sitting in a clinic room telling people how to eat better, how to lose weight. Maybe I'll be working in a hospital on a ward. I don't know, but that's how the whole thing started. I think there was a there was another side of it for me as well that I'd done pretty well at school, but then as soon as I got to university doing my English degree, my interest in academic achievement kind of evaporated, and I was distracted by all, all the usual uh, joys of university life, and I just about muddled through with a degree. But I'd, I'd always sort of had this sense that I hadn't quite done justice to my brains and my academic abilities. In fact, having a an opportunity in my 40s to go back to university and do a really challenging science degree having not done any science since I was 15 or 16 as well, was really appealing. And I think that in itself drew me into it because 
I think it was to prove to myself that I was capable of of meeting that standard. And at that time, I just thought, well, I've done quite well with my businesses and I've achieved quite a lot here. So why why wouldn't I do well if I if I apply myself in the in the same way? Funnily enough, studying to do something, any any job, studying and training to do it is actually quite different to doing the job itself. If you look at undertaking training for any kind of professional skill you're going on a journey from your first day when you know next to nothing and you have your first lectures and your first assignments and then you start to get an awareness of what the job will actually entail and it moves more into a sort of practical sphere for me that meant you know as after a couple of years you start doing hospital placements you begin to see patients and so all of that theory starts to get put into practice but even so, for me, it was five years of study because I had to go and do a year before the degree doing effectively all my science A-levels with an access course. So you do that and then you get the kind of thrill of meeting the standard and getting a place at a good university, which sort of feels like a little sort of mini, a little mini mountain climbs in itself. Then you do the degree and you know that it's going to be four years and you're being assessed and you're doing all the essays and you're constantly trying to get the highest marks and being maybe a bit competitive with the people you study with. So there's all these little staging posts and achievements that you tick off as you go along, culminating in getting the degree itself. For a lot of people, they were dead set on on getting a first. And I must say a lot of people I studied with did for me getting a 2-1 was the pinnacle of my ambitions and achieving that was it gave me a huge sense of satisfaction just given how hard it was but it still the whole thing just felt like a big long-term project start to finish with this end point in sight of successfully qualifying being able to have those letters rd registered dietitian after my name and say yes i've achieved this against the background of family life and everything else and with the other things i've done and so getting over the finish line gave me a huge set sense of satisfaction however you once you've done that then you start going out and looking for jobs now turning up for work and actually then practicing and using what you've learned day in, day out in the real world, in a team of colleagues, with all the surrounding factors that make up a working life, that's completely different. For me, certainly, working in the NHS and all the other elements of what my working life ended up entailing ended up being quite different to how I expected Mm-hmm. And the way I responded to it was quite different uh, to what I expected. It sounds like there was a certain level of competition or drive there to to progress. That that the challenge, because from some of the things you made reference to in the past, that you're up for doing something new, from learning. Um, and it sounded like there was a bit of a challenge there in terms of what your expectations were regarding the course and then the reality of actually doing the studying and fair play to sort of effectively do your A-levels again and then to do a further four years. And that's, you know, it's a, a big ask. Done that, you've got um, your 2-1, you're, you're ecstatic. You're now facing working in the NHS. And it sounds like from what you're indicating that there's a bit of a, a culture shock or it wasn't what you expected so what was it you expected and what was the reality i think to begin with i would say before i embarked on this journey because i'd essentially always been self-employed and had control over the terms of my day-to-day work i'd been fairly successful but i'd also been able to decide what kind of what being successful meant so i would choose my projects and choose which direction to take my business in everything made sense to me I wasn't being told what kind of work to do by anybody else so that probably made it easier to succeed on my own terms when you are in one of the world's biggest organizations a very hierarchical uh, rigidly managed organization the NHS and you're very junior you come up against a very different way of working Mm -hmm. and I think my 
my expectation, my my naive expectation was that uh, I would progress pretty quickly through it. So I looked, I, I did a lot of work experience in the hospital. I ended up working in at the start of my degree. Uh, I thought I should just to get a feel of it, go on the wards. And they were very helpful. You know, let me, I spent weeks there actually helping out on projects just getting a feel for it and I came out thinking yeah I could I can really see myself working in this environment and I looked at some of the people there and I thought yeah I could you know I'll be here a couple of years and I'll move up into this job and that job before I know it I'll be in management it all all made sense to me didn't didn't really work out like that I think and, and the reality of being a a very junior member of the team uh, but also 25, 30 years older than my mm-hmm. colleagues, 25 years older than my manager, the only man. All of those things gave me a sense of uh, not really fitting in. That's certainly not down to any of the people I work with. They were lovely and uh, very, uh, very welcoming and accommodating and generous with their knowledge. But I think the way you perceive yourself and the way you feel about how you fit into your surroundings has a big impact on your confidence and your belief, you know, just down to believing the words that come out of your mouth. I think a lot of us can just put on our best face and get through it. But if you've got this kind of fundamental underlying doubt about being in the right, whether you're in the right place and uh, whether other people take you seriously, that can be quite uh, corrosive to your confidence and, mo- and motivation. Anyway, managed to get a job, job at St. Peter's Hospital. Coincidentally, or, or not, was the hospital where I'd done all this volunteering and uh, and everything. But I applied for a couple of things. A job came up there. Again, the, the whole interview process in the NHS is is pretty rigid and transparent. Uh, but uh, I felt great about going to work there because I. I'd met a few people before, went straight into a uh, a typical band five uh, role, which is band five of the newly qualified dietitian, where you have a couple of wards to take care of, and then you do a uh, weekly outpatient clinic. So on the wards, you I had I had a respiratory ward and a cardiac ward, so I was looking after the nutritional needs of acutely ill people, uh, some of whom may have uh, uh, not been eating enough and not been able to eat because of um, the, the, you know, the acute illnesses they had. Some of them would perhaps have to be fed through tubes uh, because they weren't able to, able to eat orally uh, at that stage of their illness. So you're working in a pretty fast-paced environment. Uh, hospital wards are very busy places. There are nurses, doctors, uh, physiotherapists, all sorts of people competing for uh, space and the access to the medical notes. It's obviously very hierarchical and everyone defers to the doctors and the junior doctors defer to the senior doctors. So that takes quite a bit of getting used to, to um, accept and, and as and as a as a therapist, as a um, a dietitian, is what's known as an AHP, an associated health professional. So, although hopefully you are respected and your advice is acknowledged by doctors and everybody else, you're definitely a junior person in the packing order. And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of standing around waiting until everyone else is finished until you make your comments, and then. Your, uh, a lot of the time your advice may not be heeded or maybe, uh, you know, people may just ride roughshod over what you've said. That side of it, you do feel like you're part of the busy uh, um, professional hospital team and sometimes that your input is really having a good impact on, on outcomes for people. The other side of the job I mentioned, the outpatient clinics, it's a bit like a GP in surgery people who've sometimes waited three or even six months to see a dietitian they've got about half an hour with you and they could be there for anything from newly diagnosed diabetes to irritable bowel syndrome weight management 
people for coming in for advice about being overweight, advice about being underweight. Uh, they could have all sorts of um, digestive issues, all kinds of things, really. You get a little bit of time before a clinic, just quickly looking at people's notes. So you've got some idea what you're looking at. And that is uh, a very, very rewarding side of the job, actually. And that's probably the thing that was that was closest to how I'd imagined it. Because very often the problems that people have when they come in to see you have impacted hugely on their quality of life. Perhaps you have a somebody in their 40s who's just been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Could be any number of reasons. Perhaps their weight's crept up on them over the last couple of decades and they've been warned to lose a bit of weight and haven't been able to. And then they've had a blood test and found that uh, they've got to go on medication because their because um, their blood sugars aren't well regulated enough. And then uh, perhaps they've had another warning saying that if you know if uh, if you don't change your diet or if you don't lose some weight, then we're going to start insulin. Um, those are real turning points in people's lives, and. Um, Sometimes the advice that people are able to get from their GP or elsewhere just doesn't go far enough or deep enough or give people the right motivation and they don't feel sufficiently supported to really make those changes. So in situations like that, you really feel you've got an opportunity to make an impact and and to help somebody make life-changing decisions with with your support irritable bowel syndrome is another one you know something that people often feel uncomfortable or embarrassed or uneasy to discuss but it can be hugely hugely debilitating when people have really uh crippling digestive problems not always caused by um their choices of food you know it's a there's a big link with mental health and anxiety but it gets to the stage for some people where they are you know it's a vicious circle sometimes the the anxiety can uh exacerbate uh digestive and bowel symptoms to the point where people are um worried to leave the house because they need to be near a toilet at all times of day and then that creates a whole new level of anxiety anxiety in itself and people try to um, find links between certain foods that they're having and they think well maybe it's this often a lot of superstition is then involved that is not very logical or evidence-based but then when you sit down and start taking a diet history and trying to unpick what the triggers are for for the symptoms somebody's experiencing even if there isn't any evidence for what they say, you still are wise to take it seriously because mm-hmm. your symptoms are your symptoms. Whether there's research to back it up uh, on a wider scale, it's real to that person mm-hmm. and their distress and their and their lifestyle and everything that they're struggling with is very real. But it can be hugely, hugely challenging, and often, you know, the kind of conversations you're having end up not having much to do with food or physiology or anything very scientific Mm -hmm. Uh, people often just want to feel listened to and want to feel heard and that's and and, and that's how it all begins it's funny really you know you can think one week you're in university doing these things on a theoretical level and you have a bit of hospital experience but then you go out and get a job and the first few weeks you sometimes can't quite believe now you've got letters after your name you're just being let loose giving advice unsupervised to patients and being regarded as an authority on all things to do with diet so that does take quite a bit of getting used to but it's it's quite a thrill as well actually when you have a successful encounter with a with a patient and you feel you've made a difference and you think yeah this is this this is why i did it and it's so yeah you really want to make a difference you're having an impact uh, both in terms of what people are eating but also from a, a well-being perspective from a mental health perspective in, in many ways you spoke there about like fitting in or being different to everyone else whether it be an age or, or gender and 
and also that kind of feeling of uh, not only getting used to being sort of lower down in the pecking order, but also the responsibility and now you're being respected or let loose, as you said, to, to make these decisions and so on. It seems like alongside that, there's this element of uncertainty, like an imposture syndrome. Absolutely. And I don't, so how I, did you... I don't think I ever got over that. And I, right. it's funny, you know, I never felt that at all in the, uh, in the other types of work I did before. So it was quite a surprise to me mm. that I, exactly, that I felt uh, like an imposter as, uh, as a dietitian. And I'm still not quite sure why that is, really, because um, I think it's natural to feel that way in the beginning. Even after a few years of doing it, I still had this sense that probably other people were better qualified than me and, uh, you know, possibly this patient would do better getting advice from another colleague, from a senior colleague. Whether that's got to do with uh, how I was managed, I don't know. Um, I think, I, you know, I, I was managed, involved with different people in the job I had, but one of whom was uh, very kind of relaxed and um, just would just say, you know, yeah, just go out there. Don't worry. It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Say what you've got to say. Um, and she was a very senior member of the team and just seemed to be quite quite sort of trusting and open and all about building confidence in her in the people she was managing the colleague i had to who managed me most closely over most of the time i was there though was quite a bit younger very very high achieving and good at what she did but i always sort of had this sense that she was looking over my shoulder and commenting in a slight more of a sort of deficit based way always had this sort of feeling that uh, you know you know we, we have these we'd have these reviews every now and again so well i just you know i was looking at this these in the such and such notes that you wrote and are you sure you wanted to write this when you feel that everything you've done is being sort of double checked and it, it, it makes you quite nervous and uh i don't know it's like it's like a lot of things in life you just you just tighten up and you can't quite relax and be yourself so that definitely sort of impacted on my ability to to be myself in healthcare it is very very important to be supervised all the way through your career not just when you've when you're newly qualified but even when you're very senior it's important to have mentoring and uh, ongoing clinical supervision from you know even when even when you're at the very top just to talk through patients with other qualified people just as a reference point and to make sure that you're not missing something really important and to give you some perspective but I think if we use the analogy of sports coaching everybody has different ways of expressing themselves and uh, and giving their best and I think a, a skillful coach will take time to find out what motivates that person and what what conditions they need to work in to give their best because if you've successfully completed a very challenging degree say and then successfully interviewed for a job all of that says that you've got certain qualities and abilities that have brought you to that point and from a manager's point of view it's then part of your challenge to find how to enable that person to express their best abilities in that job but it's going to be it's going to be different for every single person i think and uh what i've really found in in this is that confidence is such a such a key part of it you know we often think of that in a in a sporting context reading the the football reports and uh, you know maybe a Maybe there's a really highly paid player who's moved to a new club and just isn't performing and isn't scoring goals. And everyone's saying, you know, why haven't they scored yet? It's been two months since uh, since this player scored a goal. And then the scrutiny becomes unbearable sometimes, you know, the ex weight of expectation. And sometimes I think in different ways in our lives, that kind of 
pressure, whether it's self-imposed or imposed by others, can start to really weigh down on you. And it becomes so present in your thinking that it distracts you from the very simple business of doing your job. I think that did happen to me to some extent in my work. And is that one of the things that led you to move on from your dietitian work? That's one of the things. Also, the fact that I, I just didn't really feel that I that, that I fitted in. Something you hear a lot about nowadays is people talk about finding your tribe, don't they? Have you heard people say mm-hmm. that? You know, very. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's it's talking about things you do outside work and how it's important to have this sense of belonging to something. Uh, and you know, a- outside work for me, my tribe is definitely my um, you know rowing. And the people that I row with, that's a world where I feel comfortable with, where we all want to do the same thing. We all kind of accept one another and feel that we've got the same the same outlook uh, and the same interests. And I certainly felt that the team of people I work with at the hospital, probably 25 or 30 dietitians, who were all very, very nice people and very accepting and welcoming to me, most of them gave the impression of being a tribe together in terms of the work and also the things they did outside work. A lot of them would share houses and know each other socially and be part of a wider tribe of dietitians where they had a kind of deep underlying base of interest in the world of dietetics and everything that surrounds it. So it all made sense for them being in this world. And Mm I always, in my mind, even though I tried to throw myself into it and sort of attend talks and be part of stuff, I always felt like a visitor. It's funny, I think it, around in your in your 40s, that's the time when a lot of people start to think, you know, have I made the right career choice? Why am I doing this? You know, I'm only doing it for the money. Uh, I can't leave because I'm the breadwinner and uh, I wish I'd done something else. You know, I've got a great friend who's a very successful solicitor achieved a lot in 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 that work and provides really well for his family and has a lovely house but he's said many times over the years that you know he wishes he could just be a a carpenter a cabinet maker something he's also very good at but clearly their lifestyle would be it would have been a bit different had he chosen to do that and he hasn't he's you know it's not a choice that he's got so it's something that he can pursue in his uh, in his free time He's not the only one. Lots of people have thought, oh, you know, I wish I could just, just, you know, take off this, take mm. off the burden and and do something all day that really, um, I, you know, that I really feel excited about. Well, I'm quite unusual in that I've had loads of opportunities throughout my working life to change what I do. I've pretty much changed jobs whenever I felt like it. I'm very fortunate that my wife's successful in what she does is just immensely supportive and understanding and never never I mean she'll question it in terms of whether it's right for me and what makes me happy but she'd never say oh don't leave that job because it because it, it, it won't be right right for us she just wants me to be happy in what I do which is an amazing amazingly privileged position to be in possibly it's made it too easy to change doing things and I mm-hmm. think that's what I was doing in my 40s with my catering business and my shop you know which was a great success really it wasn't enjoyable the whole time like anything but if I'd had no alternative I would have carried on doing that I don't know what would have you know what I might have been doing now in fact I was in this hugely privileged position to go to university in my 40s and start all over again all my university fees were paid for by the NHS they were so keen to get good people into dietetics they stopped that now but for about 10 years, if you could get a place. So there were about 350 people applying for 25 places at KCL, which is where I did my degree, which, again, made me feel pretty good about getting one mm. of those places. And then they pay your fees. So the whole thing, it was a great opportunity. But that around the time I did that, a lot of my friends were just all feeling quite disenchanted and thinking, oh, you know, I wish... You know, I wish I could do this career. I wish I could stop this sort of humdrum life, but it's too late now. I'm just speculating and thinking, well, we often look at other people and think, well, what he's doing must be more interesting. Uh, or, oh, you know, she always seems to be very self-determining in her life and do what she wants. I wish I could be a bit more like that. But 
satisfaction in life comes in many shapes and forms and work is just one part of it isn't it you always hear about the people who threw in a, a high-flying city career and then you know gave it all up sold their house moved to the country to become uh, uh, a shoemaker uh, living in relative poverty but um, you know who say you know I never regretted it I'm much happier 15 years on or who, or who actually become a really successful shoemaker, and uh, and you know really critically acclaimed, and these these are the ones you read about. You don't ever hear about the people that 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 stopped doing a certain career, invested loads of time and effort in doing something else, and then had second thoughts about it many years later. And I think I wouldn't say that what I've done has been, you know, that I regret it. It's certainly not been a, a complete success for me, <laughs> and. Uh, and that has surprised me, despite uh, having really committed to it, and um, despite the fact that I've inevitably developed a really deep uh, insight into food and nutrition and behaviour and the way that affects society. I've had fascinating conversations with all sorts of people, with colleagues, with patients, obviously with my wife and with my friends, all about how food and our eating habits and behaviours and government policy on food production and the way on global policy on food production, how all of this has brought us to where we are now. Mm. Um, there's a big disconnect between the big picture and looking at the last few decades in hindsight and saying, um, some of these decisions about agriculture and food production weren't such a good idea in hindsight. There's a big disconnect between that and then being a practitioner sitting across the table from one patient who you can see obesity is a it is what I'm thinking of in the background because when we were children, obesity wasn't really an issue you heard about. Now it's a, it's a huge, huge challenge to individuals and to society and as a result to the economy because of all the healthcare costs involved and it's largely come about because of post-war agricultural policy trying to feed everybody with the best intentions but inevitably that led to massive production of cheap high carbohydrate foods grains flour and industrialized food production made a lot of people very rich and has created a world where people eat these very highly processed, high calorie, but affordable foods. And this has led to a world where people on average consume far too much energy. And it's created a huge health crisis that nobody really seems to know how to get out of. Knowing all that in the background, certainly as a practitioner, you quickly get over any prejudices towards mm. people who might be struggling with overweight. And the common perception might be, well, you know, they got themselves into the posi this position, they shouldn't eat as much. Well, when you realise the scale of the problem, you you, you know, mm. realise it's just people are living in completely hostile conditions where it's inevitable human nature being what it is, that a huge percentage of people are going to end up overweight. And then as a as a dietitian or as a doctor or as a nurse or anybody that's treating people who are struggling with it, you're trying to support somebody with changing their situation, making realistic changes that can actually help them lose weight and be healthier. But in a hugely hostile environment where they're beset with food choices and availability of foods and social conditions that completely oppose what, what they're mm. trying to achieve. That's a really interesting one. And everybody knows about it. Uh, <laughs> You're very passionate about this area. You know the sort of the history, the backstory, which has helped the way that you interacted with your, your clients or your patients. So now you're at this kind of crossroads with having left the NHS, but still clearly interested in food in general and understanding the importance that has from many perspectives. 
what does that mean to you now? Is it something that you see yourself remaining in as a field or is it like, oh, I'm going to do something completely different again? That's the question that I am uh, wrestling with Mm. at the moment. On the one hand, I have successfully started again and done different things several times before in my life. So there's no reason I shouldn't do that now. On the other hand, I do have a certain amount of knowledge and experience now as a dietitian. So I've probably got something to offer people. But I'm just looking at the at the channels in which you can do that and wondering if that really suits my personality. Mm. You know, in the course of thinking about this conversation, I looked at what my working life had involved. A lot of the work that I've done and found most satisfying has involved undertaking a series of little projects, seeing them through to completion. So I think of my early career as a decorator and doing building work where you might decorate a room or fit a kitchen or paint the outside of somebody's house, build a wardrobe. You have a kind of, you have a problem and then you have the inception, meeting the challenge, seeing it through, doing everything meticulously and then completing it to everybody's satisfaction. It's complex enough to be rewarding in that way. Catering was the same. I catered for weddings for many years. All of those, you know, the process begins probably six months before and then it gets to the sharp end in the week before the wedding and you've got ingredients, hiring staff, making sure the whole thing goes well on the day. It all goes off well. Everybody loves the food. The event's a success. And then you do the next one. So on, you know, with the with the catering and the business and the shop that I had, you get quite a satisfying cycle of challenge. Most times, uh, success, reward, and then it's repeated in a way that that feels good. I think with the training as a dietitian, as I've described, actually taking on the challenge of the study and becoming qualified felt like um, it had that same shape. You can just look like you're climbing the mountain. You get to the top of the mountain and think, well, where do I go now? The, the process of being a dietitian is, you know, the, the job satisfaction available to you really comes in very, very little pieces. I see a few patients in a day. Many of the patients that I was presented with were, you know, unfortunately, there wasn't much opportunity for satisfaction and fulfillment from my point of view, often because there wasn't really the opportunity to have enough impact. Uh, I sort of patients I was seeing were often underweight or malnourished uh, older people, uh, who were you know often in many cases approaching end of life mm-hmm. so there was very little scope really to have a big impact you try and make the best contribution you can in many cases but the ratio of patient contact to administration seems completely out of proportion as well you know you might spend five or ten minutes with a patient and then an hour or two doing all the processing around it and then a few weeks later you'll find out it hasn't really affected the outcome so I found that was less satisfying than I was hoping it would be and then outside the the NHS uh, world I think the option is really to be an independent practitioner seeing private clients where hopefully you would meet people who where you feel you've got more of a chance to make an impact but i'm just wondering whether my personality is the right you know if if i'm the right kind of person to be doing that sort of work because i i just want to have that sense of believing in what i'm doing and i think knowing what the problem is and understanding the backgrounds and being able to speak passionately in that way might not translate into be into being a passionate practitioner doing it on an everyday basis when you don't know what kind of patients you're going to encounter yes and i i'd be interested to know more and perhaps we can hook up at a later stage to see Mm. the progression you've made um because i'm certain that you will find something else to do and uh you've got that kind of chutzpah to keep going and i think ultimately there are points where you just have to know this isn't for me, but I've given it a go. And that's what you've done. And I'm sure regardless of whether you go back to dietitian work or not, there are key things that you've learned from that process, 
which you can take forward, whatever it may be. Yeah, I think it's inevitable that working in the sharp end of healthcare, I've worked through the pandemic and visited people at home in my in my community role who were living in very, very difficult circumstances. So you really, really see the kind of the big cross-section of society. It challenges your own preconceptions and shakes you out of, you know, what mm-hmm. in my case is a very comfortable and privileged environment that I live in. And you realise that many people have just been very unfortunate throughout all of their lives and this impacts massively on their on their health yeah healthcare is a very interesting thing i think the everybody knows that the nhs is is struggling Mm. failing in many cases to meet the demands that are placed on it those demands have changed massively over the last 70 80 years since it since it was founded and what struck me is that all the whole system runs on on goodwill really there's a completely unrealistic expectation um a lot of people are hugely grateful for the help they get from the nhs but a lot of people have unrealistic expectations and a sense of entitlement that the nhs should do everything for them mm-hmm. and i remember years ago long before i became a dietitian a friend is a gp talked about what she called the medicalization of everyday life. Now that there's an NHS, people, not just members of the public, but members of the medical profession, try and introduce medical solutions and medical input for things that really should be a matter of day-to-day common sense. And not only does this mean that many people are reluctant to take responsibility for their own well-being and they don't know how to because you know but the nhs actively encourages people to defer responsibility for their own health to gps and healthcare um, programs and so it takes the thinking out of it and people feel that there will always be a medical or a pharmaceutical solution for everything now the extension of that is that as medicine develops and as um, healthcare becomes intertwined with every bit of our lives, there's this idea that there's no ailment that can't be either cured or addressed or um, mitigated by medical input. And there's a fantastic book I really recommend by an American doctor called um, Atul go one day called being mortal and he's a hugely experienced doctor um, who has worked in healthcare and seen thousands of patients in his working life and his observation is that the whole of modern healthcare has developed to prolong life at all costs with an mm-hmm. emphasis on treating people because you can when perhaps the emphasis should be on quality of life and not length of life both practitioners and patients are sometimes sharing in a process where everybody thinks well this solution exists there's a 10 percent chance of it being successful but because it can be done it should be done the kind of value attached to prolonging life has come to outweigh value attached to having a shorter life but with less suffering and where people are allowed to focus on the things that are really important so instead of having more days and more years of life there should be a focus on how you can enhance your experience of the time that you do live that was very very thought-provoking to me and in a lot of the work that I did with people that were in their 80s and 90s and had been unwell, maybe bedbound for many years, maybe underweight for many years, one of the things we do as dietitians, people aren't eating, is prescribing these little bottled milkshakes, which are nutritionally complete supplements. If people won't eat anything else, we'll prescribe some of those. If you can't drink it, you 
might uh, um, give it with a teaspoon if they can't take if they can't take anything orally. Somebody, you know, as a last resort, may end up um, being fed through a tube for one reason or another. And sometimes you would look at the way in which people are living and thinking, why why are we doing this? You know, what's how does this person benefit here? And sometimes nobody really knows. The family don't really know. The medical profession don't know. But there seems like there's no way out of it. Again, you can look at it from a distance and think this is madness. When it's you or when it's somebody that's close to you, your whole attitude changes and yeah. your value system changes. It's interesting. As part of the wider debate about where the NHS is going, how we allocate our time and resources, um, there does possibly seem to be this emphasis on just keeping people staggering along uh, when the quality of life is long gone. And that's something I encountered a lot in my in my last job, certainly. That's a huge, huge debate, and that that's a, a topic for a series of podcasts. <laughs> One of the things we do is the favourite five. Can you share with me either an interesting fact about yourself or something that you're most proud of? And something that I just look back on with a lot of pleasure. I'm not sure how how interesting it is. Going back 20, 30 years, I was the singer in a covers band for a few years on and off with a bunch of blokes who I'm still friends with. And um, it just remains one of the most enjoyable things I've ever done. And I still daydream about doing it again. They were all great musicians and I had no background at all. I was just an energetic front man. And we did a, you know, a few weddings and events and things. Um, but just the, the 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 joy of doing that and expressing yourself and seeing other people, seeing you know, getting a getting an audience of a few hundred people dancing and cheering and begging for more was just the greatest thing. And I think you know when you talk about fulfilment and satisfaction in life, you can see why people who perform uh just want to do more of it it was it was a great great thing to do and we 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 loved it so i look back on that with such affection there's very little evidence of what we did but uh um very well ingrained evidence in our memories i think you know and for people that saw it so it was it was fantastic excellent well it fits nicely into the next question what would be your favorite song or piece of music i think that's a difficult one for anyone isn't it really trying and it could it probably change from day to day I, the, the song I would pick for me, and probably if you ask my wife, she'd say the same thing, is Here Comes the Sun by the Beatles. George Harrison, yeah. It's, it's something I could, you know, I, I could play it now and just uh, it would sound fresh and it would move me. It's got that lovely, it's a, it's it has a, a cheerful but slightly melancholy uh, feel to it. Uh, I attempted to play guitar a bit and I've been trying to play that, which is for many years quite has quite a fiddly kind of mechanical kind of approach that you need to picking it out properly not when George Harrison plays it it's just wonderful my children have grown up listening to that song just hugely meaningful to me that's the song I'd have played at my funeral I think oh thank you so food I'd have to say Italian I would say my wife is uh, from Italian family a lot of the food that we cook and eat together and that we've enjoyed together is uh, uh, is Italian. But I think having worked as a chef and worked in cooking for so long, a lot, a lot of my training was in more of a sort of French tradition with a lot of complex sauces and quite elaborate dishes with a lot of different elements. And I think the more you cook and the more you eat, the more you just want to eat simple, uncomplicated, high-quality food where the ingredients are wonderful where and that doesn't mean that it doesn't require a huge amount of skill to prepare it because actually bringing the best out of simple ingredients say a beautiful piece of fish some lovely vegetables just preparing those perfectly you imagine if you had a nice piece if you've been to the market you've got a nice fresh piece of fish just preparing it getting it just seasoned properly, cooking it so the skin is just the right level of crispness, um, cooking it so it's just cooked but still moist, 
and then doing the nice, you know, just some very simple, appropriate vegetables, just just done to the right points and serving that at the right time in the right way, uh, in the right surroundings so that you and everybody you're eating those things mm. with enjoys them at their best. That is the essence of Italian cooking. And it's the hardest thing. It's the thing that, you know, to to think, conceive and prepare and serve food in that way is so rewarding for everybody involved and actually you know think linking it to music i always think it's a bit like um that kind of very elaborate uh cookery is like a complicated orchestra good italian cooking is like rock and roll you've just got you know guitar bass drums and a singer simple elements but when they combine and the band just gets the perfect groove and a lovely rhythm and it just grabs you deep in your chest Mm-hmm. And that's that's the that's the essence of that type of music, and it's the same with with cooking, where you get that kind of visceral pleasure that's so hard to get right, but when you hit it right on the money, you just can't beat it. That is an excellent answer. Favorite place? I love being at home. Just in, invest a huge amount of effort and uh, and time and into into making our home a nice place and i think you know we our home is very personal to us and has lots of objects and pictures and and little things that represent the the life we've had together and i just like being here but i i think if i wasn't at home probably the family the the place for us is uh pembrokeshire in 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 wales where it's just beautiful and unspoilt and has wonderful beaches and coastline and we love going there with our dog and just had lots of very free and happy times there as a family and i'd you know i'd I'd go there tomorrow if i could so i'd recommend it to anybody excellent and book film or video game i love reading big heavy old novels you know the um dickens and Thomas Hardy, Thackeray, those those sort of big stories that have, you know, dozens of characters and you can really lose yourself in the whole world. But I think probably of those old novels, my my all-time favourite is Don Quixote by Cervantes, the classic Spanish novel, which is just this endlessly entertaining and inventive and funny and insightful story of this very sweet-natured but deluded man who thinks himself a knight and sets off across Spain with his trusty, dim-witted, but really quite wise right-hand man, Sancho Panza, and all the adventures they have. It reaches out across the centuries, really, is written in a 1600 and something, but it just is full of everyday wisdom mm-hmm. and wit and humour and insight into human nature. Look forward to reading it. I read it probably at least 10 years ago, but it was just such a pleasure from start to finish if i read it you know if i read any book again i would read that but it's a it's a six month job doing it yeah. but I, again that was it's always stayed become part of my inner life really that book so i loved it hero or person you admire thinking about that the person i i, I i've chosen is my father um just because i think we've all got people we admire um who we know about uh possibly well-known people we've never met or possibly people we've come across but there might be something we admire about people or that we aspire to so it was like a musical or a sporting hero or something but you can never really know what that person is really like and what it would be like to you know what a relationship would be like and what their qualities are like what other sacrifices they may have made to done the things that that you admire I think the difference with my father is that somebody that I knew very well he he died uh in his early 60s when I was still in my 20s shortly after retiring um as I mentioned earlier he wasn't very happy in his working life but he Mm. was just the warmest and most generous and and loving father you could you could imagine and he did all of that despite not being particularly happy himself, mm. uh, struggled with depression and alcoholism, but uh, he didn't make that anybody else's problem, mm. really. And um, when I think about 
being a father myself, just a lot of the qualities of patience and kindness and good humour that that that, um, that he had. You know, I would hope to have a little of that. I often think about him. He died 30 years ago, but I think about the sort of relationship we might have had, the conversations we'd have had. But uh, but yeah, he was from another time and uh, somebody that I you know that I love to remember and my mother's an amazing woman as well still with us in her 80s and deserving of a podcast of her own you know hopefully she'll be with us for many years to come and uh, somebody I also admire very much that's excellent well thank you very much for your time Ed it's much appreciated and I look forward to catching up with you today thank you for taking the time to listen to the podcast until next time remember help people feel valued listen Don't just hear.